Life works the way God intends when we put Him first in every area of our lives. To help us live that life, God gave us the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are principles to live by, principles that bring our relationship to God and each other closer together. They're a way to understand how God wants us to live. These commandments help us love God and love others. The Tenth Commandment says not to covet what others have. Discontentment in our minds and hearts can turn our desires into an idol we want more than God. And so God says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. Man, it is great to see you guys again this weekend. I'm guessing we're probably the only church in America uh, that had the song Jesse's Girl right before the message. Maybe you're thinking the very same thing. And if you hang on, if you're new to Hope, I'll explain why we actually do stuff like that. Uh, but it is good to see you guys this weekend. And let me just say, last weekend, uh, when the judge made the decision that churches in North Carolina could continue to worship together and meet together, I got to tell you, my phone blew up. People were asking me, when's it going to happen? Are we going to get together this week? Are we going to get together next week? And uh, listen, nobody appreciates the First Amendment the way I appreciate the First Amendment. And those of us who are in leadership at Hope, especially myself, we would love nothing more than to have things return to normal and to be able to get together and worship. The reality is we realize there are many of you who want that, many of you who are ready for that, but then there's also just as many of you who would feel uncomfortable doing that right now. And the reality is, I mean, the good and the bad is it's great to have a church the size of Hope reaching the people that we're reaching, but it has some challenges. I mean, the sheer number of people, the thousands of people to get together every weekend, gathering at the same time, the size of our facilities, can we actually get them sanitized between the services? You know, we have to get on a shuttle to actually get to the campus. It's like, you know, six flags over Jesus. The way we do our children's ministry, it, it's really tough to ensure social distancing. So the leaders here at Hope, for the time being, we decided we're going to lean on the advice of the Apostle Paul. This is what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. I have the right to do anything, you say. But then he adds this, not everything is beneficial. And so I just want to say after a lot of prayer and a lot of consideration and a lot of conversations, uh, we have decided that even though we have the right to get together, we've chosen not to reopen large group gatherings until we feel like we can provide that safe environment. And understand we're trying to make the best decisions we can on the information that's available to us. Uh, we have several churches that are similar size, similar styles of ministry that we're consulting with, trying to figure out how we can do this and do this safely, what our options are. But right now, we're going to encourage you to continue worshiping with us every weekend at gethope.tv. Uh, the good news is it's never been easier to invite someone to join you for church. In fact, you may even want to get together in your home with a group no more than 10 and enjoy the service together. Uh, we also want to encourage our small groups to continue to connect, uh, Zoom, other options that are online. Uh, it's a great time to be reminded that when the church began in Acts chapter 2, it actually began as a bunch of small groups, which means, hey, it's important to be in a small group. And if you're not in a small group, uh, just go to the web address on the screen. We can get you connected into a small group. But I want you to understand, even though we're going through this unprecedented time. There's some incredible things going on at Hope Community Church behind the scenes. I mean, just last week, I heard that in our starting point class, which is online, is, is for those who are just exploring being in a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
that a young lady who's a brand new Christian was able to lead someone else through Zoom in that class into a relationship with Jesus Christ. So I want you to know that we may not be gathering on the weekend, but God is still working, lives are still being changed. And so we would just ask you to continue to pray for those of us in leadership that we can understand how to lead through these times and we will keep you updated. And while you're praying, if you would just throw up a prayer for me and pray that one day they'll open the gyms again, I'd be really, really excited about that. Now, if you're joining us for the very first time, we're in a series that we're calling 10. Uh, It's a series that's based on the Ten Commandments. By the way, next weekend we're launching a brand new series that we're calling Lessons During a Quarantine. And I'm going to kick off this series next weekend by addressing a question that we often hear asked in a time like this. Like, Mike, if God is so kind, if he's so loving, if he's so good, why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? Why do bad things happen to good people? So we're going to kick off the series next weekend. We're going to talk about that question. But this weekend, we're wrapping up this series on the Ten Commandments. And we've learned that there's actually a relationship principle behind each one of these commandments that allows us to go deeper in our relationship with God, deeper in our relationship with one another. And honestly, I'm personally glad that we've gone through these series because I think most of us, if we grew up in church or even not in church, we think of the Ten Commandments, we think that God just gave us a bunch of rules that he wanted us to obey, and somehow if we will obey them, they'll make God happy, and somehow we'll kind of be on his good side. But I want you to understand, God did not give us the Ten Commandments so we could obey them and make him happy. God gave us the Ten Commandments so that we could obey them and we could be happy. I mean, think about it. You're going to be happier in life if you don't murder someone and end up in prison. You're going to be happier in life if you don't commit adultery and blow your family apart. You're going to be happier in life if you don't go through life stealing and coveting and lying to other people. Life is just going to be better. In fact, there's something I want to tell you, and and I'm hesitant to tell you because some of you will take advantage of it. God loves you unconditionally. And I want you to understand, God is going to continue to love you whether you obey these commandments or not. You need to understand that. God knows that we're human. He knows that we fail. He knows that we blow it. I love what the psalmist says. He's mindful. In other words, he reminds himself, we're just dust. And so God doesn't have great expectations of us. He remembers how we are. But I want you to understand, if you decide to follow and obey these commandments, these principles behind the commandments, your life is going to be better. Now, this week, we've come to the 10th commandment. Let me show it to you. It's in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. It says this. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, this is how most of us hear that commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. And we think, check, I'm good right there. I am not even into mid-century French colonial, you know, modern craftsmen. You can probably tell that I've watched way too much HGTV with Laura during this quarantine, during this shutdown. But you're like, I don't even like the style of his house. I'm okay with that one. Then you get to the next part. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And you think, check, good there. I don't even like bottle blondes. Okay, so I'm okay with that one. Here's the next one. Are his male servant or his female servant? And you think, well, that's irrelevant in the culture we live in. I don't have a problem with that one. And then you get to the next one. Are his ox or his donkey, 
And you're like, well, I'm cool with that. There's not an ox or a donkey on my entire block. Although I will tell you this, I'm glad it doesn't say goats. Because I tell you, I live in Fuquay Verena and there's some fine looking goats in Fuquay Verena. But I'm not having any problem with the ox or the donkeys. It's this next phrase that gets us. Or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, if you were here last week when we talked about giving false testimony or false witness against your neighbor, we talked about a biblical definition of what a neighbor is, and it's not the person that lives next door to you. We learned from Jesus' teaching, his story of the Good Samaritan, that a neighbor is anybody that you come in contact with. A neighbor is anyone that you come across. So literally this commandment says this, you are not allowed to covet anything that belongs to anyone else. And we're going to discover this weekend that the principle behind this commandment is the principle of contentment. And in other words, the only reason that we would covet what somebody else has is if we're not content with what we have. So let's begin by addressing the question, uh, what is coveting? What does it actually mean to covet? Well, I've told you in this series that the Ten Commandments actually appear in two different places. First, they appear in Exodus chapter 20. The context there is the people, Hebrew people, they've been, they've been slaves in Egypt for 430 years. They, they've come out, they've begun this 13-day journey on foot to the promised land. That's all it was. <clears throat> but God stops them in the middle at Mount Sinai. Moses goes to the top of the mountain. He gets the Ten Commandments. He brings them down to the people because God wanted them to understand what a civilized society looks like. They had never been a part of a society or a culture. But he also wanted them to know what his expectations were of them as they entered the promised land that he was going to give them. And so after the Ten Commandments are given the first time, they make their way over the next few days to the promised land. They get there, you know the story. They send in the 12 spies. They come back. Ten of them say, it's scary. We can't go in. So they decide not to go in. They don't trust the God that he's going to give them the land. And so God says, okay, I'm going to give you 40 years to think about it in the wilderness. So they wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. An entire generation dies off. Now they've come back to the exact place they were, right to the border of the promised land, where they were 40 years earlier. But Moses says, just in case you forgot, let me remind you of what God said. And so Deuteronomy, which means second law, he gives them the Ten Commandments for the second time. You can read the one about the Tenth Commandment. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 21. And there's a key phrase here I want you to see. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire. That is a key phrase. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So understand this word covet means to set your desire. Literally, it means to strongly desire. But I want you to understand, God isn't saying that you can't have desires. He's saying that you can't set your desire. He's saying that you can't strongly desire something that belongs to someone else. That would be a definition of coveting. In other words, coveting isn't desiring a better house for your family. Coveting isn't uh, desiring a better school system for your children. Coveting isn't desiring a new, more reliable car so that you're not breaking down in the middle of the night. Nothing wrong with having desires. But it's not okay to strongly desire or set your desire on something that belongs to someone else. That's literally what it means to covet. And I think this sin of covetousness, I think it's, I think it's more serious 
than we actually give it credit. I think it's one of those things that we could just tolerate in our lives, accept in our lives. It's not that big a deal. Everybody covets what everybody else has, right? But you gotta remember, it made the top 10. So it must be serious. In fact, let me just show you some verses that warn us against coveting. Here's the first one. It's Jesus speaking, Luke chapter 12, verse 15. And he, Jesus, said to them, take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. So let me just say this. If you've been blessed financially, and let me help you with that. I've told you before. If you have an annual household income of $47,000, you're a one percenter. If you have a household income, think about this, of $47,000 a year, you're in the top 1% of the wealthiest people on the planet. So my guess, most of you watching, you would fall into that category. So if you've been blessed financially, this would be a good verse to memorize. To remember that one person's life doesn't consist in the abundance of the thing he possesses. So right here, Jesus says, you need to beware of coveting. And then there's a few places in the New Testament where this sin of coveting is listed among other sins. What surprises me is how bad these sins are. Let me just show you a couple. Let me give you an example. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Paul writes this, Now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother. And he's, he's going to list some sins here. But let me point something out. He's not saying that we only hang around with perfect people. Because if that were the case, none of us would hang around with anyone. And there are sins in this list that we often commit, but here's what he's trying to get across. If there's someone who is sinning and they've just accepted that sin, they don't want to deal with that sin. They don't want to confess that sin. They don't want to get it worked out in their life. They've just accepted, this is the way I am and you're going to have to deal with it. Paul says, you're better off avoiding that individual. So he lists the kinds of sins he's talking about. He says someone, for example, who is sexually immoral. Or, what's the next word? Covetous, there's our sin. Or an idolater, or a reviler, it also is translated slanderer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Paul says these people are bad company. If these are sins they're committing, and they're not even feeling guilty about it, and they're Christians, stay away from them. Here's another one, Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. <clears throat> Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, that's sex before marriage, uncleanness, which is also translated impurity. It means sexual passion for someone outside of your marriage. Evil desire, and here's our sin, covetousness, notice this, which is idolatry. Now, why is it idolatry? It's because, see, you're putting someone or maybe you're putting something above God. In other words, when you covet, what you've done is this. You've exchanged your worship of God for the thing that you're coveting. Actually, you've taken God off the throne of your life and you're putting whatever it is you're coveting on the throne of your life. It could be someone's spouse. It could be someone's job. It could be someone's house. It could be someone's car, right? But you've kind of developed the attitude and most of us have been at this place at some point in our life. Have you ever thought, wow, I would do anything to have that. I would do anything to have that. In other words, you abandon your pursuit of God to pursue that someone or that something that you feel like you can't live without. At that point, it becomes idolatry. At that point, it becomes an idol. And so God says this, don't set your desires on someone else's stuff. In other words, don't covet his car. Don't covet his grill. Don't covet his money. 
Don't covet her jewelry. Don't covet her shoes. Don't cover her purse. You don't covet anything. By the way, you'll notice in the commandment, it talks about an ox, and that represented wealth because the more land you had, the more oxen you needed to work the land. It talked about the donkey. It was the mode of transportation. That would be like our car, our pickup truck. No one rode around in horses on, in, this time of period, in this time period unless they were incredibly wealthy. They were ultra-rich, maybe royalty. In fact, you may remember that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, right? But the point is this. God says, you're not to covet anything. But please hear me again. God isn't saying that it's wrong to desire. He's simply saying that it's wrong to strongly desire what belongs to someone else, because if you do that, odds are it will become an idol. For example, if you're single, it's okay to desire a wife. See, but not like the song. See, don't desire Jesse's girl. That would be wrong. Now, why do we use music like that, by the way, every once in a while at Hope? It's because nothing, nothing speaks to how a culture feels about something more than its music. So often we will use a song like that and then we will compare it with what God's word said and then we make sure we understand God wants us to do life his way, not what our culture is telling us. But that song is talking about, I wish, I wish, I would do anything to have Jesse's girl. So it's not wrong for you if you're single to desire a wife, just don't strongly desire somebody else's wife. I'll never forget when the church was small, uh, we were having a barbecue, and we had invited singles of the church, and they were hanging out with Laura and I, and there was a group of about eight of us in a circle talking, and, and they were asking Laura and I about marriage, and we were just joking around and kidding around. And then finally, one of the guys said, by the way, Laura, if anything ever happens to Mike, I have first dibs on you. Awkward. Very, very awkward. See, he doesn't understand. It's okay to desire a wife. It's just not okay to desire my wife. But let's be honest, we all have something in our life, if left unchecked, it can really mess us up. It could very easily move into the realm of coveting. So over the next few minutes, this is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna go Dr. Seuss on you. And I'm actually gonna give you some rhymes, and I'm gonna share some of these rhymes with you because I think it will help you remember them, but I think it will help you battle this temptation to covet. In fact, I really believe that they'll help us pursue the opposite of coveting, which is contentment. So let me just give you the first one, then we'll unpack it. Learn to admire without the desire to acquire. That's the first one. Learn to appreciate something without feeling like, just because they have it, I need to have it too. And you gotta understand, this is important. This is how you battle discontentment because discontentment, it's an appetite that's never fully satisfied. So we continue to feed the appetite. But what happens when you feed an appetite? Is it satisfied? No. I mean, it's like if you go out for lunch and you're really, really hungry, you can eat, and in a few hours, you're hungry again. What happens when you feed an appetite? Actually, it grows. And that's why, see, in life, the more stuff you have, the more stuff you want. I mean, when I was a kid, good gracious, we were so poor, we didn't have a whole lot of stuff, so I didn't want a whole lot of stuff. But the problem is, as you get older, you get some stuff. And the more stuff you have, the more stuff you want. My point is simply this. It's an appetite that's never fully satisfied. And so when we're constantly pursuing more stuff, you got to understand it short circuits our ability to be content. So I would just say this, the next time you see something and you're feeling like, I just can't live without it. I just can't be happy. I can't be content. I can't be satisfied without it. Learn to admire 
without the desire to acquire. Learn to appreciate that God has allowed someone else to have that, but that doesn't mean you have to have it. This just happened to me recently. I have a friend that goes to Hope. They've been here for a long time, close friends, and they have a yacht. God has blessed them, and they have a yacht. I always, t- I always say this. Listen, if you can't be rich, have rich friends, right? Uh, but he has a yacht, and they've invited Laura and I a few times during the summer maybe to go on their yacht, and we'll go somewhere on the intercoastal waterway in North Carolina. And, and we really enjoy it. It's two bedrooms, a living room, a kitchen. I mean, it's really, really nice. And so he has kept it down in Florida for the last couple of years, and he decided to bring it back to North Carolina, and he got it as far as Charleston, and the winter came, and so it's been at a marina in Charleston. So a couple of weeks ago, he says, Mike, you've been on the yacht. You know how to drive the yacht. I don't know if you drive a yacht, but you know how to uh, call, you know, navigate the lot. You know how to, or the yacht. You know what to do with the ropes and all. Would you be willing to fly down to Charleston, get the yacht with me, and bring it home? I said, sure, we'll do that. So we fly down to Charleston. We get on the yacht. The next morning, we start heading home. Um, It's about 180 miles. You know, we're coming up the intercoastal waterway. And he says, I got work to do, some phone calls to make. I'm going to go downstairs. I think you got this. So I'm I'm driving the yacht, you know. And I got to tell you, people treat you differently when you're driving a yacht. I mean, every boat that goes by, they're waving at you. And people on their docks are waving at you. And people up on their decks are screaming and waving at you. And I'm like, man, I tell you what, I could get used to having this yacht, right? And then I'm thinking, I can't even afford a pontoon boat, much less a yacht. But then it it reminded me of what I was speaking about this weekend, about having the ability to appreciate what someone else has without feeling like you have to have it yourself. And so I began to think about it. You know what's what's better about him having this yacht than me having this yacht? One, I get to go on it, but I don't have to pay for it. I don't have to maintain it. I don't have to rent a slip at a marina somewhere to keep it. I don't have to fill it up with a 1,000 gallons of diesel fuel. I don't have to do any of those things. I can just appreciate it, maybe enjoy it every once in a while, but I don't have to have it. So the first thing I want to remind you is make sure that you learn to admire something without feeling like you've got to acquire that thing. That's the first one. That'll help break contentment. Here's the second one. Make a confession about your obsession. I mean, think about it. Have you ever... Have you ever begun to to feel that fire begin to rage in your life when you see that someone has gotten something and they've gotten something that you feel like you deserve to have gotten? And you find yourself arguing with God often if you're a Christian, like, God, I can't believe he got that promotion and and I, I didn't get that promotion. Or God, how in the world can they afford to drive that car? How can they afford to live in that house? And whenever we have those feelings, basically what we're telling God is, God, I deserve that. I deserve that promotion. We get all mad at God. I deserve a car like that. Why can't I live in a house like that? But you can't go there because in reality, see, all you have to do is read the Bible. All you have to do is study the Bible, and this is what you'll discover. We deserve nothing. Actually, we do. What we deserve is for there to be a great chasm between us and God because of our sinfulness. That's what we deserve. But think about it this way. I've got it made if I'm a child of God. You've got it made if you're a child of God. For example, I got clothes on my back. I got food on my table. I got a roof over my head. I mean, I've got it made. This is what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8. For if we have food and clothing, he says, hey, we'll be content with that. But most of us aren't, right? But not only do I have food and clothing and shelter, guess what? I have forgiveness. I mean, have you really ever thought about that? Every sin that I've ever committed, 
has already been forgiven. Every sin that I will ever commit has already been forgiven. I mean, that brings incredible peace. What does Paul say in Romans chapter eight? Because of that forgiveness, nothing ever under any circumstance can separate me from the love of God. It's been crazy going through this COVID-19 and this pandemic. And uh, a question every once in a while someone will ask me is, Mike, hey man, do you think it's like the end of the world? Do you think this is it? You know, you think God's unleashing something? Is this the end of the world? And it, we, we do this. Every time there's a big earthquake, we'll say, is it the end of the world? Or a tsunami, is this the end of the world? Or, or locusts, is this the end of the world? So naturally, when we go through a pandemic, a global pandemic, we're, we're thinking, in fact, someone asked me one day, they said, do you believe that God is opening the seals of Revelation? I'm like, man, I don't understand the seals of Revelation. The only seals I understand are more like, or, or, or. I mean, I understand those kinds of seals. I don't understand the seals of Revelation. I don't know if it's the end of the world or not, but this is what I said. If it is, how cool would that be? And he looked at me like, have you lost your mind? I said, think about it. Since the world began, people have been talking about the end of the world. And if you read the Bible, one day, this world as we know it's going to end. What if God chose us to have a front row seat to watch it all go down? See, this is what I tell people. Maybe it is the end of the world. I don't know. Eat dessert first, right? right? Now, that's not being a fatalist. Uh, I, I'm not saying I'm ready to go right now, but I'll tell you this. I'm ready to go. It kind of reminds me of a joke a little boy was sitting on the front row of church one week, and the pastor asked, how many of you want to go to heaven? And everybody raised their hand except the one little boy. And so he looked down at the little boy and said, son, don't you want to go to heaven? And the boy's like, yeah, but I thought you were getting up a bus right now. Right? He said, I'm not ready to get on the bus right now, but I tell you, if this is it, I'm okay. Do you know why? Because if you're a child of God, it gives you power over fear. It gives you power over anxiety. You don't have to be a slave to those things. See, if you're a child of God, we have an incredible thing going on. But even then, we'll say to God, like, God, I can't believe you helped them. You didn't help me. Or I can't believe they got that kind of inheritance. I've never gotten that kind of inheritance. I can't believe they're driving that car. I can't afford to drive that car. But when we start to feel that way, we got to put things back into perspective. This is what Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of it. I'll give you my paraphrase. We start with zero, we end with zero. For example, I was born July 9, 1956. And when I was born, I was born with nothing. I didn't have a wallet. I didn't have a pair of pants to carry my wallet in. I didn't have a shirt on my back. I had absolutely nothing. And one day, and only God knows when, I'm gonna die. I love what it says in Psalm 139, verse 16. It says, all the days ordained for me were written in your book. Do you know what that means? Before I ever took my first breath on July 9th, 1956, God already knew when I was gonna take my last breath. One day I'm gonna die. It doesn't matter how much I exercise, and I like to exercise. It doesn't matter how healthy I eat, and I try to eat healthy. I am gonna die, and when I die, guess what? I will leave this earth with nothing. You begin with zero and you end with zero. But this is where we get messed up. This is what trips us up. Most of us as Christians, we look at life strictly from an earthly perspective and we don't look at life from a, a kingdom eternal perspective. And we think it's all about the here and now. But it's interesting, even James said in the little book of James, he says, think about it. 
in the big scheme of things, in light of eternity, your, your life is like a vapor. You ever watched a coffee pot or a tea kettle boil? I mean, you see a vapor just, and it's gone. And that's what James is saying. In the big scheme of your thing, get 70, 80, 90, 100 years, you're like, it's gone. But see, what we do in this life is we put all of our energy into, but yet the Bible teaches the 70, 80, 90 years we have on this earth, this is just a warm-up show for eternity. What we do in this life is going to determine how we spend all eternity, but instead of thinking about eternity, we just think about the vapor. And while we're in this vapor, this is how we think. I got to get some stuff. Because according to the culture and the society I live in, that's how you get happy. The more stuff you have, the happier you're going to be. Every TV we add, we're reminded, you can't be happy without this stuff. Every magazine ad we see, you can't be happy without this stuff. You know, I don't sleep great, right? And there's some mornings, I was up this week one morning at 1.30 in the morning. Sometimes It's not unusual for me to be up at 3.30 in the morning. And if I don't feel like studying yet, I'll flip on the TV. And sometimes I'll watch the TV and I'm like, wow. I don't think I can be happy without that pillow. I mean, look how happy that person is sleeping on that pillow. And if I act right now, I can get two of those pillows for $269. How can I be happy without that pillow, right? Or, Or you know what? Wow. If I had that car, I could be like Matthew McConaughey. He has that car. And I'd be happy. And not only would I be happy, Laura would be happy because I would be like Matthew McConaughey, right? Or have you ever had this one? Wow. Look how happy that person looks today. Look how light they look on their feet today after using that fiber last night. I have got to get that fiber. That's the only way I can be happy, right? Or you know what? Look at that person holding that cat. I, no, see, forget it. Cats are not going to make you happy. But my point is, my point is simply this. We get on this earth and we think the only way we can be happy is to have a lot of stuff. And so we begin to accumulate a lot of stuff. And then we look at our stuff and we compare our stuff to other people's stuff, and we're like, wait, wait, they have more stuff than I do, and they have better stuff than I do. So I gotta get more stuff, and I gotta get better stuff, but this is what I want you to understand. Regardless of how much stuff we accumulate, we're gonna die, and we're gonna end up with zero. Absolutely nothing. The church I pastored in the Bay Area of California before I moved to North Carolina to start Hope, uh, I conducted the funeral for a man, an elderly gentleman. He had been the CEO of a huge, very successful company, very wealthy man when he died. And after I was walking away from the graveside service with one of my board members, actually, we were walking back to our car, and and my board member leaned over, and he kind of with a smirk says, so how much do you think he left? And I said, well, I am pretty sure he left everything. See? He left everything. Do you know why? We start with zero and we end with zero. And if you can't live with that perspective, you're going to struggle with covetousness. So you're going to have to make a confession about your obsession. Here's the third one. Turn your resentment into contentment. Do you ever resent that people have things that you don't have? Let me show you how you can turn your resentment into contentment. This is what Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, verse 12. I know what it is to be in need And I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret. Wouldn't you like to know the secret? I have learned the secret to being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. By the way, when Paul made that statement, he wasn't being a drama queen, okay? He wasn't overacting, okay? Paul's life was pretty much a roller coaster. He knew what it meant to go from prosperity to nothing, back again, it didn't seem to matter to him. 
He didn't just assume that God had forgotten him if he was sleeping on the ground somewhere with a growling stomach, nor did he forget the role that God played in his life when he had a roof over his head and three good meals a day. Paul was just able to say, regardless of my circumstances, regardless of what's going on around me, I figured out how to be content. So here's the question. What's the answer to being content? Well, Psalm 37, verse 4, it's a very familiar verse. If you've been around church for a while, you've probably used this verse. The problem is it's often misquoted and misused because we don't understand the context. So let me see if I can give you the context of this verse. Paul says, that, or David wrote this in Psalm 37, verse 4. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Have you ever said that? God will give you the desires of your heart. But what I want you to notice in this verse is that delight comes before desire. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, I've been talking about the fact that coveting is a strong desire. You set your desire. So here's the question. How do you get your desire right so you can delight? I'm telling you, I'm getting really good with this rhyming thing. I'm probably going to write some children's books after this. But how do you get your desire right so you can delight? Well, to understand this verse, you have to understand the context. So let me give you the context. David, King David, wrote this verse. He wrote it in the later years of his life. And most theologians believe that David wrote this chapter as instruction to Solomon, who was Solomon. Solomon was his son. Solomon would one day, when David dies, Solomon would be the one that would replace David on the throne of Israel. So he's writing it to Solomon. And it's interesting, if you read this Psalm, Psalm 37, if I count it correctly, 14 times David talks about those who are evil and those who are wicked. So what's his advice to Solomon? I think this is the advice that David was giving to Solomon. He was saying, Solomon, I just want you to know, when you are king, when you're sitting on this throne, there's gonna be times when you look around and it's gonna look like those who are evil and those who are wicked are winning. It's gonna look like they have the upper hand and it's also gonna look like righteousness and all that is right, all that is good is losing. By the way, do you ever feel like that in our culture? That wickedness is winning? That good and righteousness is losing? But this is what David was saying. When you see these things going on, you can't go with your feelings. You're just gonna have to remember you have to trust God. Let me show you why I say that. Back up a verse to Psalm 37, verse three. It says, trust in the Lord and do good. And then you get to Psalm 37, verse four take delight in the Lord. In other words, this is the instruction he's given Solomon. And this is good advice for all of us. He's saying, if you can just learn to be happy with a couple of things. First of all, if you can just learn to be happy with just how good God is. And then second, if you can learn to be happy with what God has provided for you, or you won't be focused on everything that's going on around you, and you will be able to be content. You'll be at peace. Now, let me just say this. Most people think this verse means, you know, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Most people believe it means this. If you'll follow Jesus, he'll give you whatever you want. If you'll just follow Jesus, you want a hot spouse, he'll give you a hot spouse. 
You want a new car? He'll give you a new car. You want a bigger house? He'll give you a bigger house. That's not what it means. It simply means this. If you'll follow Jesus, he'll put the right desires in your heart. If you follow Jesus, you'll have the right desires. You may remember me telling you the story when I was a younger pastor and I was struggling in Southern California with an issue and I went to see a senior pastor, elderly pastor, close to retirement, one of the godliest men I've ever met in my life and I shared with him what was going on. We never even sat down in his office. I just shared it with him and he put his hands on my shoulders and he says, God, I pray that Mike will passionately pursue you. I think this is what he was saying to us. He would be saying to us. He was saying, if we will passionately pursue God, we will become passionate about the right things. If we will passionately pursue God, we will have the right desires. In other words, my advice for you this weekend is this. If you're struggling with this idea of coveting, if you will just pursue God, and if you will learn to be content with what God has given you, you'll never have to worry about coveting. You'll realize that God is faithful, you'll realize that God is trustworthy. You will understand the promise of Jeremiah 29, 11, where God says, I have plans to prosper you and not to harm you. I got plans for your future. And if you will pursue him, his desire will become your desire. And when your desire becomes God's desire, you will discover that you will never have to battle coveting again. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm often reminded when we're going through some of these struggles that we're going through right now and our faith is shaken and our trust in you isn't as strong that you remember that we're just dust. I'm also reminded of what Paul wrote to the church in Philippi in Philippians chapter one, verse six, that reminds us that he who began a good work in you He's going to be faithful to complete it. So, Father, help us to understand that what we're going through, whatever we're going through in life, wherever you have us in this stage of life, you have us there for a reason, but you're not finished with us yet. And I would pray that we would learn just to be content, to be at peace with what you're doing in our lives, regardless of what we see going on around us. And Father, often when we pray these prayers, we pray them in your son's name, the name of Jesus, because he's the one that makes it possible for us to approach you through his death and resurrection. But we also conclude our prayer by saying, amen. And often we don't even know what that word means, but this weekend it applies so much when we say amen, because what we're saying is, let it be so. God, let your desires be our desires so we can be content. Let it be so. In your son's name we pray, amen.